I'm turning today to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. We're going to continue our thoughts regarding it is finished. This morning we're going to consider verse 34. We'll, that'll be our final verse we'll read and that's where we'll find our subject this morning. Luke chapter 23 beginning in verse 27. And there followed him a great company of people and of women which also bewailed and lamented him. But Jesus, turning unto them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming in the which they shall say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bear and the paps which never gave suck. Then shall they begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things in a green tree, what shall be done in the dry? And there were also two other malefactors led with him to be put to death. And when they were come to the place, which is called Calvary, there they crucified him, and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left, then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. Man, to this point, had done his very worst. Christ had come into the world to save sinners. He came unto his own, but his own received him and knew him not. The Lord, our Emmanuel, had come, had dwelt among men, but he was not desired, he was not wanted. Eyes that were not given eyes to see the glorious light of Christ did not see the beauty in him. They did not see the gloriousness of his person. It wasn't long after Jesus was robed in human flesh, the incarnation, that a man by the name of Herod sought out to find him, and by doing that, and his part of his plan was to have all the infants two years and under killed with the hopes of stamping out, destroying the Lord Jesus Christ. Again and again, over and over, the Pharisees, as Jesus' ministry continued and began, enemies began to rise on every side. At some point during his ministry, he, I'm sure, had more enemies than he had friends. Pharisees began to plan. The Sadducees began to plan. The Sanhedrin began to plan. They put in place a, a purpose of how would they take him to destroy him. We see the cross. We see he who is hanging upon the cross. We see Christ there. And it would appear to the blinded eye that Christ is in fact being destroyed. That Christ has indeed lost. He has given up, so to speak. He said, I can't keep them off of me. I can't stay away from them. I'm just going to yield myself into their hands. Let them have their way and I'll just take whatever they bring to me. How did Jesus get to that cross? He got to that cross through a number of false ways. He got to the cross by a false trial a mocking, a scourging. 
mocking by being robed in purple, being crowned with a crown of thorns. People one after the other came and certain judges, such as Pilate, said, I find absolutely positively no fault in this man, but the people kept screaming and crying, we want him dead, we want him gone. Give us Barabbas instead and crucify him. And so we come to the cross. We've been dealing with the concept of this finished work that Christ has accomplished and what he is doing. And yet we see something very profound. We see that as Jesus is hanging upon the cross, we see the divine intercession of Christ. I mentioned at the close of our message last week that I was going to be dealing with this particular subject of Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And we see that in this divine mercy of Christ's intercession, we see Christ had been crucified. Now remember, Christ could have been killed in many other ways. The cross was not the only option. In those days, men, criminals, were stoned. Uh, there are various other ways in which man paid for the penalties of his or her crime. But there was nothing more shameful and there was nothing more painful than to die upon a cross. Now, most will tell you, and even historians, even historians such as Josephus will tell you, that the greatest pain in the cross, although the physical pain was intense, there was a pain of shame to be crucified or to be executed in what was reserved only for the worst of the worst. The intent of the cross, to hang him on a cross, was to not only take his life, but to display to the world, his enemies were displaying to the world, this is the worst of the worst. We're hanging this man who we despise, who we hate, and we want everyone to see this is how bad he is. That we're hanging him on a cross. Christ, as we read the various accounts in the gospel, each one of them takes a little bit different of approach. That doesn't mean that there is contradictory statements or contradictory facts. Each one writes from a different perspective. But we only see Jesus speak very sparingly. Now, many people have preached sermons on the last words of Christ, and in an extent, that's sort of what we're doing. But for the most part, he hangs there quietly. Now, one thing he's not doing is he's not crying for pity. He's not asking for mercy. He's not asking for his crucifiers to have a, have a heart. Take me down off of this cross. And what's even more profound is instead of praying, dear Father in heaven, strike down these crucifiers Strike them down dead now for what they're doing to me. He does the exact opposite. Instead of pronouncing a wrath and a curse upon those who drove the nails, those who plaited the thorns, those who spit upon him, he said, Father, forgive them. The context is Jesus is praying not for the world in general at this very moment. He's praying for his persecutors. He's praying for even the one 
that possibly drove the nails. Now, he's not praying generally with an idea of, Lord, Father, forgive at random whoever comes to accept me. No, you know who he's praying for? He's praying for even the elect of those who stood out in the crowd and were yelling, crucify him. He was praying for even the elect crucifiers. I bet one thing you never thought about is that some of those soldiers, some of those that were responsible for hanging him on the cross may have been part of the elect. Never thought about that, did you? Because we always think about how could somebody committing such a heinous crime against the Savior of the world do such a thing? Then how's the Apostle Paul in the family of God? Why would you say today that one of those Roman soldiers who drove the nails, who drove in the spear, who plated the thorns, why would you come to the conclusion that they couldn't possibly have been one of the elect? Because our mind runs to the reality of we thinking, well, they're too bad to ever come to Christ. Yet we in our pride think, I wasn't that bad. This divine mercy that's being demonstrated here by Christ interceding on behalf of, his, of these criminals, these executioners, is staggering. Staggering. How many of us hanging upon a cross would even think about praying for our enemies? I'll venture out and answer for all of us. None. One who drove the nails into your hands and drove the nails into your feet. And yet all throughout Scripture, we are told to pray for our enemies. We're told to pray for those who persecute us. Here's Jesus giving us an illustration of really divine intercession. Now, this was not just random intercession. Actually, what Jesus prayed when he said, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. I'm going to show you from Scripture today that actually it is the direct result of his prayer that some come to know Christ very soon. As early as six weeks after Jesus hangs on a cross, people begin to come to Christ not by random, but because of the specific prayer of Christ to his Father. Forgive them. They know not what they do. Jesus does not pronounce hatred upon them. Instead, we see his divine mercy. We see Christ with this attitude, a staggeringly significant, magnificent attitude of prayer. Now again, we often run to the reality, well, yes, he was God. He was fully man and fully God. He's instructive in the manner in which he prays for these crucifiers. Remember, if you remember the story and the narrative of Christ all the way back in Luke chapter number 3, we see that Jesus' public ministry, of course, began with preaching repentance, but it also began with prayer. Some of the last words of Jesus are a prayer unto his Father. His ministry begins with prayer and it ends with prayer. Surely, this is one of the examples we are to be left with. Oftentimes, we run very quickly to the Gospels and we say, yes, we ought to care for the poor. We ought to be a good Samaritan. But how many times have you run to the instruction in prayer when Jesus is praying for his enemies? When's the last time you prayed for an enemy? 
When's the last time you prayed for an enemy of the cross? When's the last time you prayed for a wicked ruler in our nation? When's the last time you went before the Lord just in prayer to pray for those who are carrying out wicked deeds? And I'm not saying pray to destroy them. I'm saying pray to save them. Now, Jesus Christ is praying. He's praying with a very definite atonement in mind. Don't make any mistake about that. But also don't disregard this as not being instructed for us. Praying for enemies because all throughout Scripture we are told even to love our enemies. It's not bad enough you're told to pray, but you're also told to love them. What love is it to love those who love you? Jesus is demonstrating not only love, but he's demonstrating an attitude of prayer. He has left us an example. Jesus at this point is no longer ministering to people with his hands. He's no longer ministering in person. He's no longer carrying out works of mercy and necessity. Now we see him hanging on a cross. And yet Christ's teaching has not stopped. Him hanging on a cross and the words that he said, we began a few weeks ago with the words, it is finished. And we're basically, if you're watching what we're doing, I'm going a little bit backwards. I'm going from the end and we're going back to the beginning. All of these phrases and all of these expressions were in the attitude of prayer. How significant is this? Well, we see the divine mercy of Christ's intercession. We see how in this, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. Again, look at the narrative. Look at Luke 23. Again, he's put there with two other malefactors. Depending on your translation, it may have another meaning. It just simply means those who are doers of wicked works. Those who have done wrong. Those who have broken. So again, we already look at the narrative and we say, well, we know one of the three shouldn't be there. Jesus shouldn't be hanging there because he was incapable of sin. He committed no sin. And yet we have to remember Jesus was dying on a cross, but he was not dying in the sense that we, humanly speaking, look at. In his death, he was dying in the place for all sorts of people. Again, if we would have been there at the cross and watched this, we would have, and some of the accounts in the gospel give a, give a narrative of this, insults being hurled at him. If you truly be the son of God, bring yourself down off of that cross. There was no doubt there was obscenities and profanities and all sorts of wickedness being directed at him. We know that the crucifiers, the Romans who were executing him, were mocking him. And yet Jesus opens his mouth and he says, Father, forgive them. Again, I challenge us today to think about when's the last time you even considered praying for your enemy or even forgiving them. Insulted by all sorts of men, enduring the greatest pain, the greatest shame, he addressed himself to God, his Father. Now remember, he's addressing God as his Father, not in the same sense as we do, but he is in his humanity, offering up this prayer while in his humanity. His attitude is he's praying to him. He's praying, Father. He's using those terms that are certainly terms of confidence. When he said, Father, forgive, Christ had the confidence that he was being heard. But it wasn't just to be heard. He's providing to us an example 
of even how we ought to pray. You know, if you're a child of God, your prayers are heard. And when you pray and you ask and you beg God to forgive even your enemies, God hears that prayer. We confidently know that we're told in the word of God to come boldly before the throne of grace in a time of need. The petition that Jesus puts up is not, Father, destroy them. Father, burn them to the ground. Remember the sons of thunder? Lord, send fire down from heaven and destroy our enemies. And God did no such thing at that moment. Here's Jesus praying, forgive them. Do you know the preciousness of your sins being forgiven? Do you realize the impact of that prayer? Do you realize your entire salvation is riding on the reality of Christ forgiving your sin through his shed blood? Do you realize without the forgiveness of sins, there is no remission of sins? And without the forgiveness, you are still dead in your trespasses and sins? Your sins that have been forgiven, do you realize what Jesus is asking? Forgive the vilest sins of the vilest people on the planet right now who have nailed me to this cross, and yet it's instructive to you and I to pray for our enemies. Not to pray malice against them, even though they had maliciously gone against him. Now, we do know in Scripture there are those, Jesus warned about those who sin the sin unto death. It's the unpardonable sin. It's the sins against the Holy Ghost. It's attributing the works of God to the works of Satan. There are those who have come face to face and will never accept. They will never receive Christ. They will perish eternally. But Jesus is praying specifically to forgive those who are of God. These are people that maybe, and this is what's key to this prayer, they know not what they do. There's a sense of ignorance here. There's a sense of people who are not, who are not concerned with what's happening here. But Jesus specifically says, my prayer is that you forgive them because forgive those that do not know what they're doing. That tells us there are those who do know what they're doing, but his prayer specifically is those that do not know what they're doing. We see his attitude. We also see the results of his prayer very quickly appear. When we, we don't often attach these things and think about these together, but about six weeks later, when Peter stands up in Acts chapter number 3, and we know as Peter's great sermon on the day of Pentecost, you realize what happens that day? You think that was just a random event? Do you know that that event was six weeks after Jesus said, Father, forgive them, they know what they do, and yet 3,000 souls came to know Christ on that day? Do you think that was the result of Christ's prayer, or was that just a happenstance? It was the result of Christ's prayer, the definite atonement of his people. Here's what it says. We can't read the whole narrative, but Acts chapter number 3, verse 21 or Acts chapter, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 3, verse number 12. And when Peter saw it, this was after the healing of the lame man, he answered unto the people, Ye men of Israel, why marvel you at this, or why you look so earnestly on us as though by our own power or holiness we made this man to walk? The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus, whom ye delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. Remember how fresh these things would have been in the minds of people. 
Six weeks earlier, Peter is standing there. And again, it's an amazing transformation that Peter went through. Peter went from denying Christ to a little girl to now standing up between the very people who put Jesus on the cross and he's telling them, here's what you did. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of your fathers hath glorified his son whom ye delivered, denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But ye denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you and killed the prince of life whom God hath raised from the dead whereof we are witnesses. And his name through faith and his name hath made this man strong whom ye see and know. Yea, the faith which is by him hath given him hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Now, brethren, look, look what his words are. I wot that through ignorance ye did it. Now, what did Jesus pray on the cross? They know not what they do. Through ignorance you did it, as did also your rulers. But those things which God before hath showed by the mouth of all his prophets that Christ should suffer, hath he so fulfilled. Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the time of restitution of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. After Jesus' crucifixion, there were people converted. There were people saved. There was a fruit that came to bear as a result of this prayer, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That phrase also has the tone or the tense of what they are doing continuously, meaning that as they were crucifying him, in the case of many of them, even their rulers, Jesus was acknowledging and even Peter's sermon saying, in the case of many of them, you don't really know that Jesus is the Messiah. You're doing this out of ignorance because had you known this was the Prince of Life, you would have never crucified Him. He's even suggesting that there may have been rulers who did not even know the prophecies concerning Him. You realize how often we are to throw everything and everyone in the same bucket? We assume that in Bible times, everybody knew the prophecies. Everybody knew who Jesus was. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to startle you a little bit. You would think in our world today, everybody knows who Jesus is. You realize they don't? You realize there are people who are the enemies of the cross who right now are standing and they're persecuting and they don't know Jesus is the Messiah. They don't know He's the Prince of Life. And what they're doing, they're doing out of ignorance. So often we look at sinners and we look and we say they are just filled with malice. They hate Jesus and they're intentionally hating Jesus. No, they may not even know the Prince of Life. We prayed in our prayer meeting this morning about the persecuted church and people being persecuted. And some who are persecuting don't even know what they're doing. I realize there's some controversy with what I'm saying today. Because in the back of our minds, we just want everybody destroyed who's a hater of the cross. And yet, do you realize we were all haters of the cross? 
You and I are no better than the Roman soldiers who Jesus was standing up saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. There was a time you didn't know. And yet Jesus is teaching us not only about how he prays, but he's teaching us about the reality. Now remember, the Bible also talks about ignorance not being an excuse. Ignorance did not excuse their sin. That's not what he was saying. And Christ is not saying, Father, listen, you need to pardon them because they are ignorant. No, this is mentioned as instruction for us that points out Christ's office as our priest, our high priest. He has compassion on the ignorant. He has compassion on those who don't know. This is what mercy looks like, folks. It is not hard to be merciful to people who love you, but it's really difficult to be merciful to people that hate you. I'm really bothered if ministries start to say, you know what, I just wish God would wipe out all of the God-haters. You realize what you're, what you're demonstrating here. You are asking for the destruction of some who are still dead in their sins and trespasses. They are completely ignorant of what they're doing. And yet, God never gives us the prayer of destruction. He says, no, pray the prayer of compassion. Again, I ask you the question, not to emotionally manipulate you, but just to challenge you because I'm challenged myself. Because when I read this this week, I said, I don't know the last time I prayed for an enemy. I don't know. I can't tell you when. When's the last time you prayed for an enemy? It's instructive. We sit in our churches and we're comfortable. We sing the hymns and they're glorious. We hear the word of God preached. But then there are passages that say, wait a minute, I'm supposed to love my enemies, love my neighbor as myself, and I'm supposed to pray for them. I have not done any of those three things in the last 20 years of my life. It's startling. I've prayed for the poor. I've given money to the poor. I've handed gospel tracts to the widow, the widower. I don't remember the last time I said to an enemy, I want to pray for you. Our prayer sheet, as far as I know, we have a prayer sheet. I don't think any of them are enemies of the cross per se. The instruction here that Jesus is giving is amazing. Christ is showing that he does have compassion upon the ignorant. Not an excuse, but he has compassion. He's merciful. And then we see, secondly today, we see the definite answer to Christ's intercession. Christ's prayer was effective. He prayed for his enemies, and no doubt there were enemies that came to know Christ. Think about people such as Cornelius. Cornelius gets a pretty good reputation when you read about him, but Cornelius was a Roman soldier at one point too. And if you throw them all, but thinking about the same thing, a lot of the Romans were hated and despised because they were vicious people. Praying for a Roman soldier during those days would have been like praying for somebody who wanted to inflict harm upon our, on our country, even on our, pla- on our places of residence. 
I don't think we understand the depth of this. But Christ prayed. We see even at Pentecost, we see those sermons that Peter uh, preached. And as his ministry went forth, we see the conversion of 3,000 souls on the day of Pentecost. This is not just random. These were not just people who all of a sudden said, I choose Christ for myself today. These were the ones in which Christ prayed for just like he prayed for you. That's the beauty of John 17. I don't pray for the world. I pray for you. This is not a universal salvation teaching at all. This is definite atonement. I'm going to tell you, in all many years I've been saved, I never ever once looked at this passage and I thought, you know what, when he said, Father, forgive them, I always just inserted myself in there. And I always just said, Ooh, I'm, glad he, I'm glad he saved me because I didn't know what I was doing. I never once thought about, he was actually praying for his enemies and he was praying for one that may have even nailed the nails in his hand. I'm like, wow. If we're not careful, we become very self-centered about the Scriptures. We become very focused on, this is about what God did for me. And we should rejoice in what God did for you. But we ignore what He's done for other people. I promise you, if you'd have met the Apostle Paul before he was converted, nobody in this room would have prayed for Saul. Most likely what we would have done, we'd have prayed for his destruction. When Paul announced, I'm, I, I despise all that are of that way, you think there would have been a special prayer meeting called and the church would have gathered together and they would have had so many people they had to, they had to meet outside. We're having a prayer meeting for Saul tonight. You know how many people would have showed up for that prayer meeting? None. I'm not praying for him. You see what he's doing to the church? Isn't it ironic that the greatest enemy of the church became one of the greatest preachers for the church? And it's not because Paul got intellectually smart and educated and said, I think I'll choose Christ today. No, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Even at one point in time, Saul didn't even fully understand what he was doing. But God, who is rich in mercy, we read the letters of Paul, and if we're not careful, we almost make a God out of Paul because of how glorious these truths are. But at one time, he was not the Paul that we elevate now and think about. He was an enemy. And if he lived in our day before he was converted, he would have hated you, and he would have tried to figure out a way to round you up out of your houses and put you to death. It would have been like him going to City Hall in this town and saying, I want a license to go kill and imprison every single believer up there on Petrie Road. I want him gone. Now you tell me if we're going to have a prayer meeting for Saul. We found out there's a guy praying. To, he, wants, he wants a license to come and take us. Let's pray for him. No, we'll start praying like this. Dear God, help the authorities catch him. Dear God, strike him dead. You know, what's happening? He's praying for his enemies. Again, this is tough. These are spiritual truths. I'm, I'm not sure, if I'm totally transparent with you, I'm not sure I'm even fully grasping this. Because my mind is just like, but Lord, but what about? Again, we're very self-centered about rethinking things and thinking, I was never like that guy. 
Well, the only reason you're not like that guy is because God delivered you out of your sin of ignorance. So there's a definite answer. Remember, Peter actually used the word ignorance. They know not what they do. It's the very clear explanation of why 3,000 people were converted under a single sermon. People try to recreate. <laughs> they try to recreate that. We're going to have a meeting and we're going to see. We want to see, we want to see 3,000 saved again. We want to see them saved all at one time. Nothing wrong with praying about that, but do you realize why those 3,000 were saved? Because they were of God. They were God's people. If God sees fit to save 3,000 people, truly save 3,000 people again that he's prayed for, praise God for it. Do we have to create the environment to make it happen? No, you can't. But 3,000 people as a direct result of the prayers of Christ on the cross. In praying for his enemies, Christ not only sets before us a perfect example of how we should treat people who don't just wrong us, but people that hate us. Let me give you something very, very practical today. Some of you know, have, love people who you think are beyond the reach of God's mercy. You've prayed for years and nothing's happened. You've witnessed hundreds of times, nothing happened. Can I tell you, do not stop praying for those loved ones. I have seen it too many times. I've watched it personally happen. People that I said that person is within, they are outside the reach of God's mercy. The minute you say that, you're, you're implying that you were within the reach. No, we were all outside of what should have been the mercy of God. Even the enemies can be turned. I hear often, and again, this may, maybe this is to our own detriment, I hear people talk about people that are converted in prisons. And you know what we do, what we do often? We say, that can't be real. They're just doing that because they want to get out early. Do we really believe that people are outside of the reach of God's mercy? When did we as a church get that way? Aren't we proclaiming the free offer to the gospel to any and all? Or are we offering it to people with restrictions? We'll offer it to you as long as you're not a prisoner, as long as you're not an enemy of the cross. Well, we're just going to preach it to our tidy little group of people who look the way we want Christians to look. My word, we are so Americanized. It's, 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 it, 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 it's sad. You realize how many places in the world don't look like us? How many places and people in the world that we would look at funny if they walked in the front door, we'd say, well, the people like that can't come in. You realize, don't ever stop praying. Don't lose hope praying for those who seem to be outside of the reach of God's mercy. You say, what if they're, what if they're ensnared in false doctrine? What do you think you should do? Keep praying. 
keep praying. And so I've been doing this for years. Keep praying. Praying for an open enemy of Christ is extremely difficult to do. But even an enemy of the cross today is not beyond the reach of God's mercy. Now, does that mean that every single person we pray for is going to come to know Christ? No. God's not going to lower his justice and his standard and say, okay, I'll make an exception. It still has to be through Christ and Christ alone. But we see that Christ's prayer was effective. John 17, 20, remember when that prayer was written, the high priestly prayer, you realize that Christ prayed for you and for me long before you ever believed in him. See, if you're not careful, you think, I believed on Christ on June 8, 1978. Christ prayed for you long before then. For the foundation of the world. Christ paid the debt. God opened the eyes through the Spirit. God unstopped the ears. Christ, when he prayed in John 17, 20, neither pray I for these. He was speaking about the apostles. That's the beauty of John 17. It's broken up into the different groups he's praying for. He says, Father, I'm not just praying for the apostles, but he says, I'm also praying for them which shall believe on me through their word. How did you come to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ through the apostles' word? Where is the apostles' word? The word of God. The same doctrine that the Apostle Paul, as we read in 2 Corinthians 11 in every one of his letters, the same doctrine the Apostle Paul preached is the same doctrine that opened your eyes. And yet Christ prayed for you. Christ gives us a perfect example of intercession being made for the enemies of God. Listen, I don't, I don't even begin to understand it all. I've read accounts of missionaries who've gone to tribes and places in the world. The name's escaping me, and you might know it right off. I'm try, there's a missionary that he got a, he got a burden for a lost tribe who had never had any sort of human interaction, and he thought God wants me to, get, wants me to go to them. And he wasn't even there a day, and he was, he was executed. And we can sit here and say, what a, what a wasted life. He didn't waste it. He wanted to go to a people that nobody else would go to. Again, I'm not manipulating you today. I'm just telling you facts. The story, he, he, he felt a burden to go to those people. Now, maybe they killed him out of ignorance. They didn't know he was there for the right way, but he lost his life. And it may lead us to say, wait a minute, then maybe we shouldn't even have anything to do with anybody's enemies because it might cost us our earthly life. And I'm going to look you in the face and say, it might. But you have more than this temporal life. You're not living for this life. You're living for that which is to come. If they take your earthly life, what have they taken? Very little when compared to eternity. 
Now, does that mean everybody gets on a plane and we go to a jungle somewhere? Or we go to places that say, I hate Christ. No, not everybody is equipped to do that. It's the same way we read in the Bible. Not everybody is gifted to do the same thing. And this idea that says everybody in the church has got to do the same thing or you're not a good Christian, that's not biblical. Everyone is gifted differently. But I will tell you this, there's not a single person in this room today who can't pray if you're in Christ Jesus. Yet prayer is the most neglected spiritual grace we have. And I would say, not as just neglected for praying for our enemies, we just don't do it. And yet we should. Christ prayed for us. We should pray in faith for the saving of souls. You see, we understand what Jesus Christ did. We talk about how He Definitely, his prayers were answered. But we also see the direct fulfillment that was mentioned long before he even came. Think about how much God made known before Christ ever came. Think about how much the description of what the Lord would suffer and all the circumstances around it, what it would look like. It had been foretold that the Savior that would come, Isaiah 53, 12, listen to the language, would make intercession for the transgressors. Read Isaiah 53. Again, you think that's just a random transgressor? It's specific and it's definite. He will make intercession for the transgressors. That didn't have a reference to the present ministry of Christ at God's right hand. We know the Bible says, Hebrews 7.25, He is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by Him, seeing He ever liveth to make intercession for them. That speaks of the present. That's where Christ is now. But the very moment, Isaiah 53 prophesied that the very moment that Jesus, the Messiah, would make intercession for the transgressors. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That's the intercession. It is astounding how accurate Bible prophecy is. Isaiah 53 had reference to the very gracious act at the time of his crucifixion. If you go back and you read Isaiah 53, his intercession for the transgressors was linked in the rest of that verse. He says he was numbered with the transgressors. There's another transgressor who was part of that prayer. One of those thieves. One thief, he says, today you shall be with me in paradise. The other, as far as we know, perished without Christ and is in hell today. Intercession. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He's got a criminal on his left. He's got a criminal on his right. He's got crucifiers. God has elect all over this globe. And right now, there are elect that we don't even know who they are because they're not marked with a serial number. They're not marked with a line. But yet we preach the gospel because it is the gospel that will bring the elect to salvation. He bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. The very fact that Christ would make intercession for his enemies is part of the prophecy of Isaiah 53. I'm going to quickly go over these. There are 10 things about Christ's suffering on the cross that were prophesied 
in Isaiah 53, and every one of these came to pass. It said he would be despised and rejected of men. Isaiah 53 goes on to say he would be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Isaiah 53 said he would be wounded, bruised, chastised, that he would be led as a lamb to the slaughter. It even predicted that he would be dumb before his shearers. In other words, he would not speak when given the opportunity to speak about his innocence to avoid the cross. And then the passage that blows my mind, that he would not only just suffer at the hands of man, but it would please the Lord to bruise him. Just meditate on that for just a minute. Please the Lord to bruise him, to crush him. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Isaiah 53 goes on to say that regarding Christ, he would pour out his soul unto death. It goes on to prophesy that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. He would be numbered with the transgressors. Three transgressors hanging on three crosses. Only one was innocent. The one in the middle. Here then we see the prophecy being fulfilled. What we saw here today and made intercession for the transgressors. There's the fulfillment. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Imagine thinking about the one who in, in the sight of man is murdering you. Because it's, you realize this was murder, right? He was, there was no fault in him. To capital punish a man who is guilty, or is innocent rather, is murder. Jesus Christ was fully innocent. They committed murder. And he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Remember the other murderer we just talked about 15 minutes ago? Saul was a murderer. You realize Moses killed an Egyptian. You realize David had another man's, had another, had a, a, a woman's husband killed. He might as well have just done it himself because he was guilty. Hmm, David, Moses, Paul, murderers. Yet all three are in the kingdom of heaven because they were good men and weren't filled with sin and rage and anger and depravity. No, but because of the grace of God. Somewhere along the line, in eternity past, Christ prayed for the transgressors. I've studied a lot of things over the years. And again, this is our church. I'm just being very transparent. I don't know if I've ever been as affected by a study as I have this one. There is so much to this. Not just about our own salvation, but an example of what we ought to be. And I think it's a challenge being issued to all of us. As Jesus said to his Father, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Is that the prayer of our heart for the enemies of the cross today? Or are we just like the sons of thunder to just say, Lord, 
Just send a ball of fire and destroy them all. No, thank the Lord Jesus Christ that he prayed for you. And there was a definite atonement of your soul. Not random, definite. The definite atonement of your soul. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there are moments when we are just brought to a place I, 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 don't, I don't even know what to say. Today. But Father, I think it's fitting that whether it's one or all of us, we pray for those. Those today that may be out of ignorance, they are enemies of the cross. They hate the Jesus that we love. They hate the Christ that we speak so often about, the Christ that we sing the hymns about, the Christ that we rejoice in. They despise, they've rejected him. And yet we know by the example of our Savior, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Oh, how we would pray for the opening of those who even this very moment, this very day, have set themselves against God's people. They've set themselves to commit even acts of barbarity. Father, I pray that we would truly believe in the power of the gospel to remove the chains of the bondage of sin from, from people, no matter what they are. Lord, we realize we cannot save a single soul. We cannot convince a soul in our own intellect, in our own debate skills, but we know that the Lord Jesus Christ, through the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit and the definite atonement of sinners from before the foundation of the world will come to pass. Lord, I pray that we would be brought to a reminder each and every day when we go even to our own time of private prayer. Father, that we are brought to a place where we pray for the enemies. We might even pray for those who wronged us, those who in our day-to-day -day lives, we're holding a grudge against them. We're refusing to forgive. We're growing more and more embittered because they have failed to reach an expectation. Father, may we have the attitude of prayer, not only for one another as the body of Christ, but to pray for those who are without Christ today. There is no more sad or more frightening condition than to be without Christ. And Father, we certainly pray that we would see a harvest of souls coming to know Christ as their Savior. Father, help us in this area. We all need instruction. We all need to be helped. And Father, I pray that the word of God would not return void, that it would do a work through the Spirit in all of our souls. It's in Christ's name I pray and ask these things. Amen.